Hi, I'm Anna Rosa Parker. And I'm Daniel Lamb, and this is Artist Inclusive, the podcast for ambitious artists who want to find clarity, community, and creative success. Hey, Anna, I'm I'm really excited to introduce today's episode, and obviously I'm sure you have some pretty strong feelings about our guest since he is your husband and partner in life. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I have, it's the opposite, like, I don't know what to say, because it's... <laughs> But I try to be not like so personal. Like I, I try to play the part of the podcast co-host and I hope, I hope I succeeded in that. Yeah. You weren't like, Hey, hon, can you change the TV channel real quick? <laughs> uh, no, you were, you were really great. And I think people are really going to enjoy this because as with every conversation we have, we have our sort of mindset of where it's going to go. And then ultimately every conversation is organic and it has its own sort of trajectory and lifespan. Yeah, 100%. You never know what it's going to go. But why don't we just hop to it? Shanga, thank you so much for being here with us on the Artist Inclusive Podcast today. It, this is going to be a great conversation, and we are so grateful to have you. Well, I appreciate being asked. And I'm in heady company with, you had a, a puppeteer before this and Mark Ciano. You know, this is pretty great. Thank you. Absolutely. Yes, we we are trying our best to get a really diverse sampling of people who are working within the acting world and the entertainment world from pretty much every angle we can we can cover. So I think that this is going to be a really great conversation because I think you are the first arts educator. Well, not the first arts educator that we've spoken to, but this will be a, a unique conversation. You talk to Aubrey, who's a dean. Yeah, that's that's why I'm backpedaling here, because I forgot that we spoke so much about dance. But really, yes, yeah. Aubrey's a dean. And yeah, and he got promoted. He got a different job after Daniel, after we interviewed him, he elevated his career even further. Yeah, well, and I, and to be honest, before we branded the podcast as Artist Inclusive, I spoke to Dr. Charlie Parrott here in Atlanta, who's a he's a theater professor at Kennesaw State, and he teaches like storytelling and performance art and stuff like that. So so this isn't like totally new ground, but it's new because it's you. Okay. So I, you know, we've teased enough around this idea of, of education. So Anna, you had this question of what's your biggest takeaway from teaching actors for 25 years? That's a, a significant amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. The numbers don't get smaller. So I was, I was thinking about that amount of time and it, it must be thousands of students have taught. It's a, it's a, it's a decent sized village of, of people who have been in classrooms with me, nay, a small hamlet. Here along the way, all the students are so different now. First it was Facebook and then the phone and, and TV, you know, whatever. TikTok now is going to destroy their lives. Students are the, have been the same walking in the door since I started. Yeah, there's it's different, but they're the same people. What I have found, if you take a moment, or I, I don't know, you asked me what my experience was, take a moment at some point and as often as possible as you can within the context of teaching and trying to get something done for everyone in the room, not just one person, to really see them, see them as a person, not as a student, not where they are in terms of what you're trying to teach, how they're learning, but take them in as a person and hear what they have to say. Doesn't have It doesn't take very long. It goes such a long way. That's really compelling. And I think that I've seen that in my own teaching life is that seeing people as human and who they are is is really valuable. Slight pivot question here. Have you seen any shifts in your students, I guess, 
interest in the work or, you know, maybe even like technological or pedagogical shifts because of having to teach online? Oh, yeah. Uh, to follow up the last thing that I, that I said, it felt like the ending was kind of abrupt. I don't, it's just, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. We as humans, right? We just kind of wake up one day and we realize, okay, oh, this is the situation. There are these two people. One is called this. One is called the other. And if they're siblings, oh, there's that person. Okay. And I'm here. We didn't necessarily do anything to wake up in this body, in this geographic location and period of time in history, right? This could be 14th century Iceland. We joke about that. How awful, how bad would that smell? You know what I mean? So through no fault of our own, we are in this being. And then we have to realize that to make ourselves better or something, right? Be nice to people. If you recognize that bit in the other person, like, I, I didn't ask for this either, but I'm here. Now, what do we do with it? And we, you come from that, like, basic human place. Everyone is going to feel connected. But it's stripping all that away, getting to the human, human, not idea, idea, but person, person. Okay. The switch to online is very abrupt for everyone. I was running the, the Meisner studio at the time as, as a visiting head of studios, 90 some students and 15, I don't know how many full-time and adjunct faculty. Yeah, it's not a huge amount of people, but it's enough, right? One day we were in person and the next day we had to learn what Zoom was. At first, as we're supposed to be, I felt we were ahead of the students in terms of the adaptation, right? As in, they didn't know what, what was going on. We had to tell them that we knew what was going on. So we were ahead of them. They were not far behind because they adapt quicker, because they're younger, more mobile, and they are native to a screen. Some of us learned it at some point, right? So we got through a spring semester and I felt we were just ahead of them. I think we crossed, you know, we were good, but I've never felt that before in the room that the students were that close to the inception of an idea. They were right there behind it, almost catching up, right? The idea dropped in. There's not a lot of time to ruminate because anyway, it's a longer thing. Then I did a summer high school program in, in 2020, knowing it was on Zoom, where they applied to program in person. I got switched to Zoom and they all, and most of them showed up. They were ahead of us, as in their eagerness, intensity, willingness to learn superseded our level of what we thought that was possible in the classroom because we had just taught a bunch of folks who were, we were all putting it together. That high school program was totally present and pushed us to have to do more. That's when I knew we were all in dialogue, the faculty and the students. They were bringing something to it on their own, not just responding. And we were able to adjust and adapt. So then we went through teaching. Sorry if this is long, but then we went through a part of teaching blended, a few bodies in the room, some on the screen. And I felt like by then we could all be open with one another about how, how it was different. I try to stay away from values, better shitty, good, bad. This is a different module than what we had been doing. It is possible to learn. It is possible to teach. It's always possible to teach. It's always possible to learn. And without the learning, the teaching's just shouting in a room, right? And we understand that this is the best way to get this done. So we were able to then move forward. Also by then, I think everyone was understanding there's a value in being forced to work in this medium. No one would ever choose I tell you what, this is fun. Let's have a movement class where we're all on camera. So it would never have been a choice. And yet having gone through it, I think everyone understands there's value in that. 
You can make an opera in the corner of your room if you need to. You can create your own work much easier now. You two. How are you two working together? You know, that would never have ever, never. It didn't seem bound to happen that the world would go this way and we would realize possibilities out of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it has changed in that way that it will just gotten smaller and bigger at the same time. Well, I was going to pivot here yeah. because you are an pivot. actor and I want to ask you, you've been in the academia for 25 years and you still work as an actor. So do you, do you want to tell us about that? Do why, I? Why are you still do doing it? Do I work it? as an actor? I mean, why is it still there? Why haven't you like pushed it all the way or just cut it off? Like, tell us what that's all about. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good question. And one I think about quite often, I think fundamentally, or I knew one of the, the fundamental things that I remember knowing was that I, I was, I was put here to act, to be frank. I knew more about it. I understood, I'm not saying I'm the best actor out there. I understood, I saw into it and theater deeper than I saw into other things I encountered. And I still believe that's the case. I also am deeply passionate about directing for the theater. And there might be a, a split of focus with that. I have to stay engaged professionally in the acting realm, even if I'm not auditioning or working that often. I have to be in, involved with that in order to stay relevant in the classroom, frankly. So that's part of it. It's interesting. I've talked for a little while and never once have I said that I like doing it or feel passionate about acting. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking this question. I'm using an opportunity. Why are you still doing this? Oh, I go, oh boy. Yeah. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. I, why am I still doing it? He, we can come back to that later. I'm sure that Daniel has some other questions that don't have a hidden agenda. I love the process. I love the theater. I love being creating in a room with a group of people. What's nice about acting is in that process, it's only the actor's job is only the role and you can kind of forget everything else and the director has to oversee all of it. But that whole process, maybe that's, maybe it is a split focus, directing, acting. Yeah, let's come back to it, shall we? Yeah, so it doesn't start to sound like a therapy session. Well, sure. Maybe we can rewind and build back up to get there. Because one of the questions that we had was kind of talking a little bit about your journey and your story. You graduated from Brown and UCSD. So after that time of focused learning, what, what happened next for you? I went to... I toyed with the idea of, of being in New York to start the career as an actor, but I wasn't ready for it. New York was quite intimidating. I knew I'd come back, but not then. So I, I lived in L.A. I went to L.A. and started to pursue there. I had an agent. I sent out quite a bit. I booked some sitcoms. Uh, and I gave myself five years. I said, after five years, I will reassess see what this is all about. And after five years, I had gotten a full-time teaching job at the University of Washington and moved up there. And that started the academic thing. All the while, auditioning, and I did theater in Seattle and what were called industrials or in-house videos for Microsoft. You know, worked as an actor up there as well. I went to school. I started quite young and I ended, well, not quite, but I finished everything undergrad at 21 and my MFA at 24. And then I knew I never wanted to walk into a classroom again. I was done with school. That was it. I packed it all in, 19 consecutive years of school, and then I was done. And then I have a career of walking into, into a classroom every day. That's a different thing. I knew that grad school was something 
I wanted to do. My parents are very, very strong into education. And I knew, so the MFA is a terminal degree. It's only three years. If I got that, my parents would not bother me anymore because that's as far as I could go in the degree. And again, I was quite young. Maturity-wise, I think a little bit younger. It was, yeah. So it was nice to have that. So in LA, the TV, the acting career, the Hollywood, you know, you're pursuing. Yeah, yeah. I specifically chose Los Angeles. I was interested in, in learning about acting on camera. I hadn't done very much of it at all. And I learned very quickly. The first, I did a, a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I think their second or third season. And I only had a, it was a small part. It was with Queen Latifah, but it was, it was a small part. When it came in for like my big joke moment, I had staged myself, turned to face the people I was talking to. And it's a, it was a four camera sitcom setup. And the camera that picked me up was from behind me. And instead of seeing the red light on the camera during rehearsal and opening out to it and actually having my face in front of, I, I was in theater. I turned and like faced them and had a real moment. So you get to see a lot of the, my left ear. So yeah, I learned uh, on the job a bit and I, I watched people. I'd go and just kind of sit and watch rehearsals. And I did a, a couple of marriage with children and Ed O'Neill was kind of a master in being able to work that. Was that the, were you going somewhere else with the question? No, I was Sorry. just, I wanted, you know, you to talk a little bit about when you're pursuing acting as a young person in LA. Yeah, you book some TV shows, you do this episodic kind of, you know, so time in between and then you book one and you book another. And also, I don't know if you want to talk about race or how you're being cast, you know, how that was, yeah. like, how that life was. A, yeah, yeah, good. It's a probably more interesting way to go. One of the first conversations I had with my agent at the time and subsequent with every agent and every manager that I have talked to or signed with, it's just phrased differently. Back then, this was in the 90s, the question, what are you? What are you? That was very, people felt very comfortable asking that question. Then it morphed into, where are you from? And I would give an answer. I'm from born in Lansing, Michigan. No, no, no. Where are you from? Oh, yeah. Where are your parents from? still the United States, down to being called racially ambiguous. And then I think the most recent was, where would you like to be? Where would you like to be from? So it's all around the castability of somebody who is racially ambiguous or who elicits the question, what are you? So back in the 90s, I was kind of open to everything. I'm pretty, I have a pretty good ear. I can do dialects. So I played a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent. And I learned a bit about North versus South and so, yes, and I was very glad to have these roles, right? The money, TV money is good and it's residuals and these are shows that people watch. I still get checks from some of that stuff I did. I know, I steal them. <laughs> uh, these are roles that, uh, these are roles that I, I feel very differently now about taking. There's no need for me to have to put on an accent to be on television. I did a law and order SVU. It's a doctor, again, a doctor. And I asked, and it had a sort of Indian name. And I asked if they needed an accent. And they said no. So I took the audition. And I booked. Finally got a law and order. I'm now a New York actor. And literally we're on the set. And, you know, Clyde on the set, set up sound, speed. The director walks over to me and says, hey, could you do this with an accent? Action. Of course I could. And I did. And I hit my mark. And I did the thing and said the thing. Cut. Great. Thank you so much. I don't feel very comfortable doing that anymore. That's not my thing. 
I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I did a, a episode of Mr. Robot and the character's name was Jeff Gunther. I had never played a Jeff Gunther before. When you hear Jeff Gunther, do you think of my face? I loved that. Sam Asmaiola, creator and uh, writer, directed that season, and I thanked him. I thanked him. And I wasn't the only character on that show. This woman in a hijab, it was never mentioned. She was a hacker, just like the white guy who eats Doritos. Yeah, that's that's cool. And people that don't see you or don't know who you are, how do you identify? I am a black man in America, in Iceland. And people see you often assume that you're from the Middle East or somewhere that is not. Like in a lot of India, I've had people from India come up and talk to me on the street. And I'm not sure what dialect or language. It's less so now, but that used to happen quite often. A man was arguing with me that not only was I from India, but I was from Delhi. I wasn't from Mumbai. I was definitely from Delhi. I said, that's cool. That That's really cool. There's a probably a Delhi in Lansing, Michigan where, you know. Yeah, so I don't, I don't appear as what one would think of as a, a black man in America. My parents raised all of us. We all look a little bit different than from each other. Uh, we were raised with that idea because in the end, you're not white. You will always be seen as something other. And they were raised with that consciousness. And we were learning the history and what to look out for, what to say, what not to say, all of that. Cool. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, it's cool to, to know and, and for people to hear your side of that yeah it's always it's in relation to acting it's always i walk i know i walk into the room with that that what the it's going to take them a minute for them to understand or see me in that role because it's 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 extra i know it's extra do you think it's changing now after summer 2020 i'll take the first part before the 2020 i think it is changing because the number of outlets available to people is so much greater that more people are working, ergo it is changing. Since 2020, the biggest change and difference is I feel comfortable to say, I'm not going to take roles where I have to put on an accent because it, well, yes, it, particularly the work that I did that was all for cheap humor about the accent. I think everyone is more empowered to speak their mind and want to be heard their point of view and not be told what their point of view is or their experience is and demand that that happen. We see white America theater existed, but now it's making change in the, in the Broadway league in New York it still happens. There's, there's, we've seen casting. That's a little odd. It doesn't, the role could, doesn't have to be played by a white person, or if it's a, a bit forced, right? There's the other side of that. Kind of have over one Asian and one just trying to fill the quota. And that, that that's a little cynical as well. But at least there's the attempt and there's the understanding that everyone in the room has room and uh, space to speak their minds about who they are and to be expect to be believed and to demand that somebody believe them. That's what I think is, has changed. But I found in, in school, we are much more mindful about the material, the texts that are chosen for class, not just from the non-white Western male canon, but also substance, um, what the plays are about. And students are asked, okay, this play deals with trauma or abortion or domestic violence. Are you okay with this? In the past, it would be, this would be good for you to work on. <laughs> Go turn yourself inside out in front of everybody, right? With no presumption that we're going to be able to put you back together, but we'll see some good work. It's much more of a partnership. I think the smart people out of 
2020 or making it more of a partnership as opposed to so top down. So I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into something you mentioned earlier. You, you said as a young man going to New York, you were intimidated and overwhelmed by by that scene in that city. And you made the transition to Los Angeles. So what I wanted to ask you is, what about L.A. was more approachable for you than New York? Because outside looking in, it seems like they would both kind of be a little intimidating for a young person trying to get into the industry. There are a couple of things. I, I went to Brown and quite a f- there are a few people, three people from my year went to NYU grad school a year ahead. You know, it's Juilliard. And there were quite a few people from Brown who were in New York. And I know I wanted something different that played a factor. My family had just moved out to L.A., that played a factor. It's cheaper to live in Los Angeles. You have to have a car. You have to have a car, but it's cheaper on, on the whole. It's possible to live. It is possible to live cheaper in LA than it is in, in New York. There was that. And, you know, the West Coast is, I think, easier to adapt to because the tempo is a little slower. You have to be able to drive. It's, it's easier to ramp down, I think. If you have kind of New York, the New York energy in your body, it just comes back. I think it's different. Somebody who grew up on the West Coast moving out. I taught a number of students in, in Seattle who made that transition and some successfully and some, or it's all successful, but some stayed, some didn't. So I knew I could always come back. I just, it was just when, yeah, and I think this was the perfect time to do it when we did it. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, when you moved to New York eventually? Yeah. yeah. Because of your job at NYU. Yeah. And I think for, for us, it was a, a really good time. Yeah. To shift. Yeah. You know, also since 2020, it said so many, you know, such a monumental moment. You think about these moments in life, right? Life up to a certain moment, then life after. And I think the summer of 2020 and all that around George Floyd wasn't necessarily one seminal moment, but a bunch that changed everything. And that's, Anarosa talks about, the, the conversations that we would have about race and about casting and whether or not to do an accent. And is that clowning? Is that cooning? We started to take outside of our space. We would have with people because other people would ask or it would come up. You know, it was so prevalent. Thousands of people marching. And it started, you know, of course, it becomes polarized. I don't think it starts as such. People have vastly nuanced opinions until they're told that it means something and then they take sides on it. And taking these conversations outside of the, the house, people are really funky talking about race. What's very nice in the educational space is we have to lead the students and give them an idea how to approach these matters, how to talk about it. Civilians, people out in the world don't necessarily have to, especially people who aren't faced with it daily. Yeah, that was the change. Just like you said, we took the conversation that you and I had inside the house to the outside, to the streets, to social media, to different spaces outside the house. And then a lot of people were responding. Some of it was funky how they responded. I didn't understand why I was finding a voice in that. And I just thought, I've always had it, but just at home. And people were yeah. weird that way, some of them. Yeah. Anyway, we're not going to check and about you that. Taught me what it, you taught me what it meant to be uh, an ally, a good ally. So I want to go back to the acting thing. Why do I still do it? I'm a person of the, of the theater. I'm a creator, artist by definition, right? If you look it up in the dictionary, all of the things that I do would be considered art. Ergo artist, sometimes artiste, if it's going well. 
I also teach some of the Jones for needing to act, I think gets used up a bit in the classroom because I'm creating every moment in the, at its best. I know what's going to happen, but I don't know exactly how much like the theater, the lines are there, but how it's going to come out, you're not going to know till that moment comes and then you run with it. That's a beautiful creative space that keeps me from dying to act in plays or TV. Then there's a bit of, I have never been interested in working on the business side of my business. I've tried, I have done sometimes, but it's not a strength. I feel a little hat in hand. What do you mean by that? Like teaching about the business or what do you mean by teaching about the business? Fine. But sending postcards, these kind of headshots, contacting this agent, posting this thing. Right. So this is separate than a presence on social media, which feels doable and much less onerous. But the idea about moving and shaking and going to see, and I tell students how this is what one could do as a way to deal with the industry. I've never been interested in it. And it's very difficult to become interested in that because then the job comes out of walking in with a hat in hand. Actors are at the bottom of everything. They're always so eager to get any kind of scraps. And that that existence is not interesting to me whatsoever. I'll do the work. I'll show do the work. I'll give you great I'll do the thing. But isn't that so think, sorry to interrupt why, but like Jennifer was here yesterday and we've talked to her who went to school with you, Brown. And mm-hmm. she talked about Jennifer Van Dyke. Yeah. And she talked about this being its own profession, what you're talking about. Getting the job. Yes. And and so if you're not so interested in that, that means you're not gonna work as much. Is that correct? Isn't there kind of I think that has been proven out. (laughs) I also know there's no guarantee that I do all that stuff that I'm going to get necessarily get much more work. It's no guarantee. The thing is, I'm not bitter about it or wish it were different. I long for that. I like to work. That said, it doesn't keep me up all night. I also direct every year in the school year. So I get a look, I get to work on direction in the room with actors. It's important for me to have all of that flowing, teaching, directing, acting, all of that creation. To take one out would not make sense. I think that's why it's still around. I think that's your answer. That makes sense. Thank God. Obviously, you have these these like anchors in your life with with classroom obligations, time spent in the theater directing. How do you organize your time outside of of those obligations so that you can show up and deliver and be present for all of these things and stay creative and stay creative. I I don't know how much I, I want to try. I'm going to try through that book, that organizer planner book. What's that called? I think you're talking about the big rocks theory, the ethic planner. Yeah. Do you want to try them? Yeah. I want to try that one to organize my time, Daniel. Because I don't think I organize time as much as I, I fill pockets that are available with things I need to do. That's thing I don't necessarily organize time. I, I fill it with things I need to do. Yeah. And the creativity. I haven't worked on something outside of school in, in a while, but that always comes, usually comes at the end of the, the administrative or classroom things I have to do. And because I'm again around all of this, everything that I do, just about everything I do at school is about creativity. So it's all there. There's no separation necessarily. My work is, is my creative life. And I'm so 
grateful to be able to say that. I have a job in my area of study in undergrad and graduate school in the arts. It's quite amazing. And I understand the I understand the magnitude of that and appreciate it all the time. Yeah. So so kind of going in that direction, what do you find either within within your work or outside of your work? What what do you find fascinating? What sort of like starts like turning a juice on for you these days? Yeah, a couple things. One in seeing what new material people are making. The fact that a, a small independent film blind spotting David Diggs has a name and an Oscar and a Tony, but the fact that that was able, that was made into a series, right? And the, obviously they had a lot of creative juice and opinions on it because it's very different. It's very different. That's exciting to me. In the classroom to, in light of that, to a couple of weeks, week and a half, I'll have rooms full of 17, 18 year old people who are living in a world where blind spotting is a television show. And since 2020, the issues about race and not just race, gender, all of it. If a student feels uncomfortable or notes something, they have the space to be able to talk about that. And we actively give them that room to talk about that. And everyone is charged to believe them when they talk about that. This is exciting to me. What this new changed reality will, will bring. It's not over. It's never over. It's never over. Countries that started as, uh, or at some point were slave owning holding countries. I don't know when things, ideas will change about race. Holland, France, here. That's why Iceland is so fascinating. Well, they, they did at some point, didn't they? Everybody went through it, but there was no, also no one here when Icelanders first came to Iceland. They didn't have to destroy a race of people to stay here. That's, that's also a very different way of looking at or a different feel in the country. And again, this is all factual. Everything that's happening that people are talking about has been existing. We've all been here. We've all had these experiences forever. Cops have been killing black people forever. The difference is that we are able to discuss it and people are not as comfortable to be able to push their stuff to the middle of the table, walk out and say, I don't want to talk about this shit. That's what I'm excited about. And what you're saying, the system you guys have created, you know, at uh, New York University and probably other institutions is that it allows less room for gaslighting as in not believing you know you said the the others around whoever is expressing a concern or a, a feeling uh, an experience the others around are charged to believe them they will get called out if they question that yes as gaslighting that's a good thing yes what's also different or what i'm excited about based you know on the happenings in 2020 is for the first time last school year, I was able to talk about my position on faculty as a black person. And I've always advocated for students. I've worked in uh, predominantly white institutions uh, my whole career. I've always advocated for all students, all students, especially those who are not well represented. But I had never advocated for myself on faculty. And that was a moment to speak so openly in front of students about that. They know I'm not white. <laughs> I think they noticed, but I've never spoken about my experiences in that way. And also to speak about my experiences to faculty and upper, upper level administration about all of the committees that I was asked to do or counseled upon merely because I was the only one in the room who looked like this. 
I considered that to be a huge chunk of my, or added onto my service record because it goes on unspoken about that extra work. Yeah. So again, it's always been there. We're just now being able to say, oh yeah, and by the way. Talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. But before, before I know it, I did want to talk about artist inclusive and to thank you both for making that space. And what was very exciting to me, and Anaris has heard this, is to see that people talking to each other, students that I had 25 years ago, chatting with students that I had last week or two years ago, and work across the country or across geography, figuring out how they might work together. It's very exciting. It's, it's, it's quite moving to see. Thank you. Yeah, it is, it is, it is fun to see people yeah. connect in there. I love it. And it's really cool to see people across disciplines too, just mingling and mixing and, you know, picking up yeah. ideas from different places that they may not have considered previously. Yeah, I agree. And we, you know, Daniel and I have had at least a couple of people talk about that, how important it is to, to allow yourself to be inspired by other disciplines, not just your own. But also, if you're an actress, to go to the museums exactly. and, you know, listen to music and just really activate all that and, 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 allow, and allow yourself to be inspired. And yeah, thanks for being a part of our community. Hey, my pleasure. <laughs> I, like probably many other people, think I should be doing more or I could do more because every time I go in, it's, it's meaningful. It's just finding that. It's organization, Daniel. That's what I need. Organize my time. Well, that's why you're going to go on the yeah, panel yeah, like yeah, the Daniel book. and I yeah. do that. And the ethic mm -hmm. planner, the, the big rocks theory. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll create our own at some point. Please. It's definitely in the works. More uh, about that later. Still under uh, a giant secretive tent that we can't uh, unveil just yet. But um, anyway, Shinga, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such an enlightening and generous conversation. I feel enriched for being here with you today. Where can people learn about what you're doing and connect with you? I am Shenga P, Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, just my name. Awesome. And we'll put all the links to your socials and your email in the show notes. Again, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Daniel, what do you think? Do you have any takeaways from this interview with, with Shanga, aka my husband? I have a lot of takeaways. Honestly, this was like a masterclass in, in like teaching and in diversity and just professionalism. I loved what Shanga said about approaching a student teacher relationship from a non hierarchical standpoint and how it's really so important and impactful to see this as two humans showing up and learning from one another. Because I think that really teaching is learning. And in a lot of ways, learning is teaching. Yeah. I mean, there's so this is a different art form. And, you know, I've just seen what I've seen and how it's with uh, students is I've never seen anybody, another teacher do it, but he really just gives everybody notes, like individual notes. He like really just sees what sees their strengths and, and so on. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get too deep into that, but I think he's really, that's really authentic how he is with his students, you know, treats them like people. And the other thing that really stuck out to me was just him talking about his journey as a black man in America. Obviously it's enlightening for me as 
a white man to hear that experience and have somebody walk through that and talk about things like questions about what are you, who are you, where are you from? Nobody ever asked me that. Obviously, it's a, a completely different given set of circumstances and a different type of consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we can't imagine living that life, you know, being white. You know, I'm, I feel like I have an amazing birthright, you know, being a Scandinavian white woman and marrying into a black family 16 years ago has showed me a, a different world. And it's just very interesting. Like we talked about how we took the conversation from inside the house to the, the streets and social media and just to talk more openly about inclusion, equity, inclusion, you know, diversity with and race and Shinka being black with people. And yeah, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but it's, it's, it can be frustrating. People are funky about race. White people are really weird about race. Yeah. In 2020, after the death of George Floyd and the conversations that started happening around being anti-racist, there was some there's some difficult conversations that were happening in, in my life and in my own family and people who didn't necessarily agree and not to get into detail, but it, it really, like you said, it is kind of funky and it is difficult and it is interesting what people will say or believe about these things. Yeah. White fragility is, is, is deep and real uh, and white guilt. But the thing is that we are talking about it now and that is a step forward. Absolutely. Every step forward is important. You know, obviously we have a long way to go, but I think it's good. It's a good step in the right direction. Yeah. Albeit a small one. Yeah. Do you think this episode was like very serious or was it, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the conversation? I mean, not that it had to be funny, but because Shanker actually is like really funny, but people don't know that. He doesn't show that off, I think. I, I think, I think some of the outtakes were pretty funny. Like, obviously, like, it was like talking to a philosopher. There's always an element of seriousness, but there's there's also levity as well. Yeah, I just conversations like that are are rare and I'm I'm lucky to have been a part of it. Cool. The Artist Inclusive Podcast is brought to you by the Artist Inclusive Facebook group and artistinclusive.com. Learn more about Artist Inclusive at our website or join our free Facebook group. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share this message with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast. This is how we are able to reach more engaged and impactful artists just like you.